All right, so today we continue our study of the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. So let me read that for you. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So read the words of the living God. So we pick up our story for us a week later. Last week was Easter, Easter Sunday. We celebrated the resurrection. We looked at the passage earlier in John 20 where Jesus appears to Mary. Uh, this is later on that day, that evening, in fact, and Jesus appears to the disciples. Uh, we find out later that Thomas is not with them. So Judas is gone. Thomas is not here. So we presume this is the other 10 apostles. And Jesus shows up, uh, goes through a, a shut door, and we'll come back and talk about that in a little bit. And, uh, and then he says a couple of things that admittedly are rather difficult. Uh, one thing that's wonderful, two things that are rather hard. So I'm going to go to the hard things first and then come back to the easy and wonderful thing at the end. So one of the hard things that Jesus says here to the disciples is, if you forgive the sins of any, then their sins are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, their sins are retained. That's difficult because we know that only God has the authority to forgive sins. Taking at face value here, it sure seems like Jesus is transferring that ability to these apostles. If that's true, it begs the question, why didn't they forgive everybody's sins? If that's the power and the authority they now have. It reminds me of something we studied in our Church History 2 class recently, for those of you who may have watched us on Periscope as we broadcast all eight classes there. Uh, we were talking about the period of Church History from the Reformation until now. And the Reformation, for anyone who may not know this, began when a Catholic monk named Martin Luther tacked 95 theses on a church door. And he was not trying with that, uh, with those theses, he was not trying to start an uproar. He was trying to start a conversation about some things that he found troublesome uh, in the Catholic Church, and particularly with the Pope. And it had to do with what are called indulgences. Now, I need to give you a little bit, bit of background if you are not familiar with Catholic theology. So Catholicism teaches that believers who... Uh, go through all the proper rituals and sacraments, those who uh, receive baptism and the sacrament of confirmation 
and then who later receive the sacrament of penance whenever they commit mortal sins, uh, the Catholic religion teaches that those people who do all of those things uh, correctly have uh, eternal life. They escape the eternal wrath of God, but they don't escape the temporal wrath of God. There is this place that we go to after we die that is called purgatory. I'm sure you've all heard of the term purgatory. Purgatory is the place and the time where we suffer what are called the temporal punishments for our sin. So Jesus took our eternal punishment, but we still have to suffer the temporal punishment. And so purgatory is a hell-like experience for hundreds and thousands even of years for everybody. Everybody goes there except for the saints, and there are only a few of those. Everybody else, you and me and everybody else, we will go to this place called purgatory. Again, this is Catholic doctrine, not biblical doctrine. Uh, we'll go to this place called purgatory where we must suffer temporal punishment for our sin for thousands of years. So the Pope who took this verse seriously and another passage where Jesus says to the apostles, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Uh, Catholic theology takes those verses and believes that the, uh, the authority given here to the apostles is handed down to the popes and through succession, each pope after the previous one. And that the church, the, the church leaders, the pope has the, uh, the authority to forgive sins and, and condemn sinners. But, as it developed over the years, if the Pope granted what's called an indulgence, then people who are in purgatory can be released from purgatory and go on to eternal life, go on to heaven. And the way that the average person can uh, free their, their dead relatives or dead friends from purgatory, those who've gone on and are now suffering in purgatory, the way that we could free someone from that place is to give money to the church, and the Pope would then uh, create an indulgence and free those people from purgatory. Uh, this was a wonderful fundraiser for the Catholic Church. Uh, they built St. Peter's Basilica and most of the Vatican through the sale of indulgences. Because you can imagine, if, if you were convinced that your dead relatives were in purgatory, and here you are and you have more money than you need, it seems very selfish to keep that money for your own comfort when you could release someone from this great torture. So Martin Luther saw all of this, and he asked some questions, such as, if the Pope has the authority to release people from purgatory, why would he not release everyone from purgatory? Why would he only do this when people paid money? It's a really great question. It's a reasonable question, and it exposed some of the, uh, the atrocity of this doctrine. Well, the same thing could be asked of these apostles. If Jesus here is truly granting them the authority to forgive sins, then that begs the question, why would they not forgive the sins of everybody if they love people? 
And the truth is, as we walk through the rest of the New Testament, uh, for instance, the book of Acts, which shows what these disciples did shortly after Jesus uh, ascended into heaven, they did not go around town to town, city to city, and start forgiving people's sins, just willy-nilly. So, oh, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. Nah, you don't like so much. Nah, you haven't been so nice to me. Hey, you haven't filled my pocketbook. I'm not going to forgive you, but I'll forgive you and you and you and you. We don't see any of that. In fact, we don't even see God forgiving everyone's sins. Theologically, you could argue that God can't forgive everyone's sins because he's a just God. And a just judge has to condemn evildoers. And that's where the whole message of the gospel comes in. That's why Jesus came to die on the cross, so that God can be just by forgiving those who put their trust in Jesus and justify sinners that way. That's the heart of the gospel. So it seems really unlikely. In fact, I would say it's, it's virtual impossibility that Jesus here is truly granting authority to these disciples to just go forgive whoever they want to. So if that's not what he's doing, which again is kind of the plain reading here, if that's not what's going on here, what does this mean? What does Jesus mean by the sins that you forgive are forgiven and the sins that are retained uh, by you are retained. Well, I think it is tied to what he said a couple of verses earlier when he said to them, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Remember, Jesus said this over and over again in the Gospel of John. I've come to do what the Father has called me to do. I've been sent by the Father. I'm only doing what he sent me to do. And what is it that Jesus was sent to do? To reconcile people to the Father. In John 3, the verse that we all know so well, verse 16, John tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. That's John 3, 16. Verse 17 says, Jesus did not come to condemn the world or to judge the world, but he came to save the world. And it specifically says this is why he was sent, to save the world. Now this was mind-blowing stuff for these disciples. They were expecting the Messiah to show up, to establish his kingdom, to rule and reign over all the other nations from Jerusalem, for it to be a military power, a very temporal kind of kingdom. And remember we saw when Jesus was standing before Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this realm. I have a different kind of kingdom than what you may be thinking. I'm not a threat to Caesar because I'm not here to overthrow his rule. It was always intended to be a kingdom that was uh, going to take over the world through the preaching of the gospel. He is building his kingdom, and it is spreading, and, and he is conquering everything that sets itself up against his name. We, Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians. that He says, we apostles are sent out here to take every thought captive, every thought that sets itself up uh, against God. We are taking it captive. How? through the gospel. In fact, he specifically says it's not through fleshly warfare. It's not through weapons. It's not through guns and bombers and missiles and that kind of thing. It's through the preaching of the gospel. Well, these disciples were kind of slow to understand all of this. Uh, we see that Jesus has several conversations 
with them about these kind of things. In Luke's gospel, he meets the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus and then comes and joins all 12 of them or 11 of them. And uh, he says, you slow of heart, you, you, you're, you're dull of thinking here. You should have known as you read the Old Testament that the Messiah would come and die and rise again. But they didn't get it. Even in the early part of Acts, the first few verses there, we see uh, Jesus uh, telling, giving the, the disciples sort of his last words. And Peter says, which shouldn't shock anybody, Peter says, are you now going to give the kingdom to Israel? And I, I think, you know, there must have been one of those face palms of Jesus. No, just, okay, it's not for you to know these things. Just go and wait until the power comes on high and then you'll be my witnesses and so on. So I think what Jesus is saying here is you are going to forgive sins not through some inherent authority you have, but through the preaching of the gospel. Paul calls the gospel the power of God for salvation. You and I have that same power. We have the same authority these disciples were given. Again, some church traditions following Catholicism uh, grant this authority to pastors, where pastors will stand up before their congregations and absolve them of all their sins and declare their sins forgiven. They will say, uh, by the power invested in me as a minister of the gospel, I forgive you all your sins. That's scary. I believe they are taking upon themselves a prerogative the, that Scripture does not give them. But we all have this authority. Preach the gospel. And everyone who receives that gospel, their sins are forgiven. And everyone who doesn't receive the gospel, everyone who, who doesn't believe in Jesus, their sins are going to be retained. In that sense, these disciples are going to be sent to forgive and to condemn. And we're in the same, same position. This is John's version of the Great Commission. And he had to set the disciples up for it before the day of Pentecost. And again, I just want to stress, we have that same power. We've been given the same responsibility the apostles have been given. We've been given the same authority to declare the forgiveness of sins in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we preach that truth and anybody repents of their sin and puts their trust in Jesus, we can say to them, your sins are forgiven. Not because we have inherent authority, but the, uh, the authority of the gospel that God has given. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here with these disciples. So speaking of Pentecost, that leads us back to the second thing that is a rather difficult statement. Verse 22 says, when Jesus had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Well, you can imagine scholars over the centuries wrestling with this. It sure sounds like here we have a pre-Pentecost dispensing of the Spirit to these men. And that may be what it is. It's possible. I don't think so, but it's certainly possible. If it's true that these disciples here receive the Holy Spirit, one has to wonder... What good did it do? For the next 40 days leading up to Pentecost, maybe, you know, 50 days, the, the, up until Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on, on them in a big way and on the church as, as the great gathering there in Jerusalem, which 
we, we all look at as the, the launching of the church. And Peter there says this is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, and it, it's a big deal that day of Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit comes upon all believers. Between this encounter and Pentecost, the disciples do almost nothing. They go home, they go fishing, uh, they wait, they're surprised when Jesus shows up again. They didn't, in the power of the Spirit, go transform Jerusalem. They didn't go preach the gospel that we know of. They're here huddled up and they're afraid. And again, later on, Jesus is going to rebuke them for not understanding the Old Testament. If this is Jesus giving them the Spirit, it sure seems like the Spirit does nothing in them until the day of Pentecost. So if that's not what it is, which obviously it sounds like I don't think that's what it is, then what is it? Well, I don't know for sure. But here's what makes most sense to me. First of all, I want to point out one technical grammatical thing that may help. You know how I preach from the New American Standard, and oftentimes I'll draw attention to the fact that whenever there is a word missing in the Greek, the uh, New American Standard will put it in italics to show you that it's not in the original language. Well, here they don't do that, and I wish they had. When it says Jesus breathed on them, the words on them are not in the original. I don't know why the translators don't, uh, don't put that on them in, in parentheses or in italics here, but it just says he breathes. Now, it may be implied that he breathed on them, but you automatically associate the on them with the spirits coming upon them when you see that in the text. But one possibility, and this is what makes most sense to me, is Jesus is there with them. He's just said, peace, I'm sending you just as the Father sent me. Now, he doesn't send them yet. That doesn't actually come until Pentecost. He's reminding them that he's going to send them, that he's been sending them all along. We already saw this in the high priestly prayer in John 14, 15, 16, 17, all there. He says, I'm sending them, Father, just as you sent me. But he doesn't send them here yet. They don't go anywhere until Pentecost. So it's possible that Jesus is preparing them for what's coming. Again, he's reminding them of their mission. And this is new news for them. They're, they're still cloudy on all the details. They're, they're shocked. Remember, this is Easter day. So they're still getting over the fact that he's alive. We saw him dead. Mary saw him alive. He may have already appeared to some of them alive. Now he's appearing to all of them. And they're still they're rejoicing, but they're trying to figure out what all this means. And, and he's got to continue to transform their thinking away from the Old Testament Jewish kingdom mindset to what's really going to happen. I think Jesus here is setting them up for Pentecost. The word spirit in both the Greek and the Hebrew, the Old Testament word is ruah, the New Testament word is pneuma, or pneuma as we often say in both languages, the same word that's translated spirit is also translated wind or breath. So depending on the context, sometimes it means breath, 
Sometimes it means wind, but Jesus, Jesus used it earlier in John when he's talking to Nicodemus. And he said, the spirit blows where it will like the wind. You can't see the wind and you can't see the spirit, but you see the effects. He ties together their wind and spirit in John 3. Well, what happens on the day of Pentecost? These same disciples and a bunch more are all gathered together in the upper room and they hear a sound like a rushing wind. And then the Spirit shows up in the form of tongues of fire, and that's when they start speaking in languages they've never learned, and they proclaim the mighty deeds of God to the people who are gathered. I suspect what Jesus is doing here is giving them a little preview. He, he exhales, he breathes out, and tells them, receive the Holy Spirit, not like in that moment, but he's already told them, I'm going to send the Spirit. And he qualified that. He explained when he would send the Spirit. Back in, in John 14, 15, 16, I'm going to send the Spirit. When? When I send to my Father. That's what he says. I'm going to the Father, and it's a good thing that I go. Don't let your heart be troubled. It's a good thing. If I go to the Father, I will send the Spirit. Doesn't make a lot of sense for him to say all of that if he's going to give them the Holy Spirit right here and now. What I think he's doing is he's saying, receive the Spirit that I promised. You will receive the Spirit in a month or so. And I'm breathing to give you an object lesson, to, to remind you to associate it again, the coming of the Spirit and breath and wind. So I don't think he gives them the Spirit here I think he's preparing them for the day of Pentecost, which is soon to come, in which they will be filled with the Spirit and everything will change. Then they will go out. They'll take the gospel out. And they go in power on the day of Pentecost and they uh, do miracles and they preach. And the first day they preach, 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus. Well, for us, this is, a good new, is good news because that same day when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, he says to all who are gathered, this promise is for you and for your children and your children's children and all who are far off. If you believe the gospel, if you repent of your sins and are baptized into Christ, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Well, here we are. We are far off. We are 2,000 years far off and thousands of miles away from where he said that. And to this day, you and I have that Holy Spirit. We have received his breath. We have received the Holy Spirit. And that spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that spirit that caused 3,000 people to come to faith in Jesus on the day of Pentecost, that spirit indwells us. And he is bearing fruit. He is filling us with love and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. And he is at work in my life and in your life today. It, again, it's what Jesus said was the great promise. I'm going to send him. I, I'm going to leave you, and I know you're sad. Don't, your hearts are troubled, but don't be troubled. I'm going to send you my spirit. We have that same spirit, and he is transforming us.
Now, my limited congregation here in my household, my wife and my children, have looks on their faces right now as I repeated the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, and they want to make sure that I know and you know that I forgot one. Isn't that right? I did skip one. Didn't forget it. I skipped it. The one I skipped was peace, because that leads to the easy thing that Jesus says in this section. Ha! Didn't have faith in me, did you? Jesus says not once, but twice, peace be with you. He shows up. They're in a locked room. They're scared. They're scared of the Jews. That's what the text says. Jesus is alive. You would think that would calm all their fears, but it doesn't. He, they're thinking if the Jews went to the extremes that they did to, to execute Jesus, to crucify him, they're going to come after us. So they're in the room, door shut, and Jesus shows up. Now, this is what I was alluding to last week. It doesn't say he went through the door, the locked door. He may have. All we know is the door's locked, and there he is. I suppose it wouldn't be a simple matter of him opening the door if it was locked. But he shows up, and they are terrified to see him. And he says, peace. And he says, I'm sending you out. And again, he says, peace. Why would he say that? Because he knows they are afraid. He knows they have much to fear. They are going to suffer for being disciples of Jesus. They, most all of them, are going to give the ultimate sacrifice for Christ. They are going to die as martyrs. And he knows that's coming. And he knows the famines that are coming. And he knows just all the, the pain and suffering that's coming their way. And he says, peace. This is a standard Hebrew greeting to this day. Just like we say hello when we meet somebody, they said shalom. That's the Hebrew word for peace. And it means the absence of war and the absence of, of conflict. But even more than that, beyond that, it means uh, great blessing and prosperity. When a, a Jewish person says shalom, they are pronouncing upon you life-long uh, and, and comprehensive blessing and prosperity. That's what they mean by peace. And that's what Jesus means here. I'm declaring to you peace, blessing, prosperity. Not, not in, a, in a purely uh, wealth and health kind of sense, but that your whole life would overflow with the blessing of God. Now, that includes absence of conflict and absence of war. That's good news for us. I mean, think about the context. The reason, again, I'm preaching to you from my living room and we're not gathered together in our church building is because right now there is all kinds of chaos. There's all kinds of fear in our world. There seems to be good news about the number of coronavirus uh, deaths. Seems like the numbers are going down. There's talk all week about uh, relieving some of the uh, social distancing and the, the stay-at-home uh, orders and that kind of thing. But there's this ongoing fear of, number one, as we get back out in culture again and society, of more people getting the virus, a resurgence, and, and more deaths. And then there's the economic impact. We're all kind of waiting to see how devastating that is. And we don't know. And even when all this passes by, when we get beyond the coronavirus, there's always something that's going to cause us 
to be afraid. And Jesus will say to you and to me today the same thing he said to these men in this upper room. Peace. Peace. So the question is, what kind of war and conflict is welling up within you right now? Is it conflict with someone outside of yourself? Maybe being cooped up together for <laughs> five or six weeks, there's conflict within your household. Is it neighbors, is it coworkers, other family members? Uh, what kind of conflicts are there in your life? What kind of inner conflicts do you experience? What kind of battles rage within you? Uh, fears, um, doubts, uh, all kinds of oppression that can occur on the inner man and the in inside of us. We have a solution to those problems. We have a, a remedy for those struggles. It's the peace of Christ. He had already told them earlier, my peace I leave with you, not a peace like the world gives you, but the peace that only I can give. So brother and sister, I know there's lots of threats to us today and every day, but we have the Spirit of God who gives peace, who creates peace. It's his fruit. That means it's something that he actually produces. And if you're a Christian, you have that spirit. And Jesus himself promised to give us his peace. And here his blessing is, Shalom. Peace be to you. So, brother and sister, if you are experiencing that inner conflict today, I want to encourage you, when we get done here, Take some time before you eat your lunch, pray, ponder, talk maybe with your family if you're gathered with them, if you're by yourself, speak to the Lord and believe. Believe what he promised here. This is not for the select few Christians, really spiritual Christians. This is for all of us. You're not the exception. The peace of Christ and the peace of the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. There is no need for us to continue in fear and conflict and, and internal turmoil, even as the world around us is crashing down, because we have the peace of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for revealing to us what you've sent who you've sent in the Holy Spirit. May we be people who are passionate to preach this peace to the lost. And may we be people who draw upon that peace every day with hearts of faith and trust in you. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.